uh, this morning. We started our study of Galatians last week, um, and uh, we looked at the first uh, five verses last week. And, and as we looked at those and as we introduced ourselves uh, to this book, one of the things that we saw, one of the things that we really looked at was that we cannot earn God's favor through legalism. That we cannot earn God's favor actually at all. That the gospel is both free and also freeing. Not only does the gospel come to us free, but it also frees us. And so we're going to continue uh, this week thinking about the gospel, but also begin to consider what it means and what happens if we begin to turn away from it. Now before we get into Galatians, and we will be in Galatians chapter 1 starting with verse 6, so you can go ahead and start making your way there. But, but before we get there, I want us to, to spend a few moments in the Old Testament. I want us to spend a few moments with King Solomon. Now, I'm sure many of you remember the story of King Solomon. He is David's son. He is the third king and last king of the United Kingdom. In fact, it's Solomon's death that creates the civil war that eventually splits God's people into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. But Solomon, Solomon's scripture tells us, is pretty awesome. Pretty cool. He's, he's anointed king. He's blessed by his father. He establishes his reign. He receives both wisdom and wealth as a gift from God. He builds the temple, the temple that his father had wanted to build, but God would not let him. Solomon builds the temple. He returns the ark after the temple is built. He returns the ark to Jerusalem, and he establishes Israel as a major geopolitical player in the region. In fact, the nation of Israel never extends so far geographically as it does under King Solomon. We also know that he was used by the Holy Spirit to write portions of Scripture. To write Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Solomon is one of these folks who seems to have it all. He, he's, he seems to, to get it. And I'll point out that everything that I have just said happens in the first ten chapters of 1 Kings. But how does first, the 11th chapter of 1 Kings start? 1 Kings 11.1 1 says this, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. We'll skip a little bit. You don't need all of the summary of his love life. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And so in Solomon, we see this person who, who's got it. 
He's blessed by God. He serves God. God blesses him in all of these ways. He does all of these things to serve God and serve God's people. And yet, at the end, he stumbles and does not cross the finish line. Solomon does not finish well. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression, to finish well. That's often my advice to folks, folks I know who are getting ready to leave a job, leave employment, change something. Um, Finish well. You turn in your two weeks notice, you work as hard those last two weeks as you worked your first two weeks. Finish well. Elsewhere in Scripture, right, we heard of the life of God is, is described to us as a race. As an athletic event, if you're running the 400 meter and you are the fastest person on the track for 350 meters and then you stop, are you going to win the race? I mean, you could be running at world record speed, something I would know nothing about. And you stop, you could stop at 399 meters and you would still not win the race you didn't finish well solomon did not finish well you know and i think solomon should point out and solomon's life should be a warning to us that no matter who you are It's possible to not finish well. It was possible for Solomon to not finish well. Everything he had done. And he did not finish well. As we turn to Galatians, we're going to see that the Galatians are in danger of not finishing well. So we are in the book of Galatians, the first chapter, starting with the sixth verse this morning. We're going to read down through verse 10. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? I am amazed, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is some other gospel, but there, but there are some who are troubling you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Am I striving to please people? If I were still striving to please people, I would not be a servant of God. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. Live it. Dear Heavenly God, we just give you thanks for this opportunity to come and open your word, to learn about your grace, to learn about perseverance, to learn about tenacity and holding on to the gospel. And so my prayer this morning is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So, we all remember, right, we all remember the ways that we were taught to write a letter, 
Now, I will admit that I have to look it up every now and then. I don't remember, you know, whether the date goes first or the inside address goes first or the outside address goes first. But what I do remember is after I get all of that stuff in the right order, right, you start with a salutation, dear whoever, dearest whoever, or if you are being very formal and or um, trying to get free coupons because they messed up your order at the drive-thru, to whom it may concern. And then you have the, the, the subject matter of your letter, and then we end, right, we end with that, um, um, I don't remember even now what it's called, but it's the, 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 the sincerely part, right? Sincerely, Carter McNeese, or sincerely yours, Carter McNeese, or your dearest and most true love, or yours in Christ. There are all sorts of ways that we can end. Often, when I write, when I write my um, column uh, for the newsletter, how do I end it? Incarnate love. You also, one of these things that I have been picking up recently, there's an expression in Latin that comes in, from the Reformation, um, uh, uh, sola deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. A lot of folks end correspondence with SDG, sola deo gloria, or the English translation. But there's a form, right? There's a form to the letter. There's a form to the way that we write. There's a form, right? Miss English teacher? Miss English teacher? There's a form. Okay. No different in the ancient world. There was a way that letters were written. And one of the things that you see, if you read Paul's letters, you read the letters in the New Testament, you see that the letters start kind of backwards. They start by him announcing who he is. He starts, and we saw that last week, Paul, an apostle. The first word of the book of Galatians is who wrote it? Paul. Then after that, often comes a statement of thanksgiving. This was the a polite, appropriate thing to do. You, you had a statement of thanksgiving. We see this in Paul's, many of Paul's letters. Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported all over the world. I give thanks for you. 1 Corinthians starts, um, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and 5, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in Him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. Okay, so maybe what about one of Paul's smaller, less seemingly significant letters? Philippians 1, 3, 4, and 5. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for you and all, all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the way you start a letter. You start a letter telling the person to whom you are writing how thankful you are for them. I would offer not a terribly bad way to start a letter these days. But Paul doesn't do that in Galatians. Paul is so put out, so horrified, so perplexed, so concerned about what he has heard about what is happening in the church in Corinth, excuse me, in Galatia, that he drops the thanksgiving altogether. He is so burdened by what he has heard that is going on, he gets rude. And he gets right to the point. There's no thanksgiving for the churches in Galatia. No social niceties. Only passionate 
warning. Because see, what's happening in the church in Galatia is that false teachers are coming into the church, leading them astray. And Paul says right here, verse 6, I am amazed. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away. Now, Paul will tell us uh, and tell believers in other places in Scripture that false teachers are a thing that we should expect them and that we need to be prepared for them. So what's Paul amazed by? He's not amazed that there are false teachers in Galatia. What he is amazed by is that the Galatians are listening to them. See, this, this turning away from the Gospel was serious. As you turn away from the gospel, you, you're changing teams. It would be like if, if one morning we came into church and Jeff Lewis was wearing dark blue. It would be apostasy. He would have turned away from his true faith of the University of North Carolina and he would have embraced the heresy that is Duke. Changing teams is a big deal, right? I remember I had a buddy of mine our whole lives growing up. He was a University of Florida fan. He was a Florida Gator. He bled blue and orange. And then he came home from the military and he went to college. And guess what? Florida State University offered him a better program with better money. So he stopped being a gator real quick and became a Seminole. But it was, a, it was a change in team. It was a big deal. One that 15 years later we still harass him about. That's what's happening. The, the Galatians are in danger of changing teams, except we're not talking about sports teams. We're not talking about political parties. We're talking about turning away and changing teams away from God. I used a word a while ago, sort of jokingly, but it's a serious word. It's this word apostasy. It's one of those big fancy words that sometimes we use in the church. But what it means is it means a turning away from. When you apostatize, you, you give up your faith. It's, it's a desertion. It's a desertion. In fact, it's a desertion sort of in three parts. And, and this is what we're seeing in Galatia is the, 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 the danger of their desertion coming in, in three parts. First of all, they are in danger of deserting the gospel. They are in des- danger of deserting the gospel. You know, there are very few people, there are very few people who are in the church who wake up one morning and say, I think that I am going to turn away from the gospel. That's, that's not what happens, Right? Most people who are sincere believers, they wake up and they say, well, the gospel's good, but, but maybe I can make it better. The, the gospel's great, but, but maybe if I just add this thing to it, I, I can enhance it. I can make it a little better. You... There are very few, very, very few sincere... Now, there are always hucksters. There are always grifters, of course. But there are very few sincere people who have fallen away from the gospel 
who start with the attitude of, I'm going to fall away from the gospel. They start from a place of, of good intention. I hate the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but there is some truth to it. The intentions are good. They, they, I, I just, I just want to make sure that people understand it better. There was a German theologian in the 19th century, Schleiermacher. What a name, right? Schleiermacher. You could tell someone, oh, that's a cute puppy in German, and you would still sound angry. But, but Schleiermacher, that's what Schleiermacher does. Schleiermacher comes along and he says, look, there are all of these people in German society that are good people, they're moral people, but because of the new modern age, they can't, they can't get on board with the old ways of expressing the gospel. And so I'm going to fix it. And as you read Schleiermacher, I would offer to you, and there are people who would disagree with this, I would read to you, Schleiermacher ends up presenting a different fault gospel. But it starts from a, a place of good. He wants people to come and know Jesus. He wants to make Jesus palatable to them. So they're in danger of deserting the gospel. Let me, let me say this. If you add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel. You add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel. I'm not much of a math person, but this is a math proof I can understand. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. The minute you start adding to the gospel, you lose it. So they're in danger of deserting the gospel. They're also in danger of deserting grace. Paul tells us here that they were called by the grace of Christ. But they're leaving the place of grace in order to receive, to return to what Paul, we're going to see later, call a place of bondage. Last week we talked about that grace was free and freeing. And as they desert grace, they are in danger of entering back into the bondage that they had left. Finally, in turning away from the gospel, they are in danger of deserting God. To apostatize, to turn away, is to forsake the living God for a dead idol for a, a golden calf of our own making. That's, that's what Solomon does, right? He turns away from God and worships false gods. You know, there's a, there's a lot that goes on and on where we ask the question, do people of what we might call the, you know, the, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the Abrahamic faiths, do we all worship the same God? And I truly don't know how to answer that question. Because the only way that I know who God is and how to worship God is through Jesus Christ. And when you abandon Christ, and when you abandon the Gospel, you desert God. You worship something that is not God. So Paul is amazed that they're turning away. He's also amazed that their turning from the gospel happened so soon and so quick. He, right there, right? He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away 
from the gospel. This was not something that happened over a, a, a long series of years. This was something that happened in relatively short order. And finally, what we can see is we can see that their turning from the gospel was not hopeless. The, the word there in verse 6 where he says that you are turning, it's a, it's a word that implies that the, the action is still in process. They have not turned from the gospel. They are turning from the gospel. The implication being that they still have the ability to correct course and to turn back. Their turning from the gospel was not hopeless. And so we see Paul abandoning all social nicety, abandoning all you know, convention and form, abandoning kind of good manners, and sort of rudely jumping in without thanksgiving, saying, I am amazed that you are being this boneheaded. That's what he's saying. I'm amazed that you are doing this really stupid thing. And so the question that we have to ask is if Paul was amazed, if these are people who had the gospel, how is this happening? How is it happening and how is it happening so quickly? Paul shows us in the, in the second part there of, of verse 7. He says, there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, first, first, what we see is that, is that there are some that are troubling them. There are these false teachers that are causing trouble. And they, they cause trouble by creating confusion and division. They cause trouble by, by creating confusion and division. In places where false teachers reign, there will not be clarity about the gospel. There will be confusion. In places where false teachers reign, there will not be Christian unity. There will be division. How many churches do we know of greater unity church which separated from unity church? Or, or, or you know, grace church that separated from a church? We know all these churches, right, that, that divide and, and there are many more churches that are divided. They don't ever split formally, but they're divided inside. Because false teaching is present. False teachers create dissent and division. They also exploit our vulnerabilities and our troubled souls. You know, we can go through stuff in life, can't we? Personal crises, the death of a loved one, hardship, tragedy, loss. Things that we might call soul trouble. And, and that soul trouble makes us vulnerable to false teachers. I want you to imagine, if you will, a young man grew up in the church, wonderful family, he's the last of the children, he goes away to college as a freshman. He comes home at Christmas 
to find out that his mother and father, he a, a deacon in the church, she a leader in the WMU, come, to, come home to find out that they are divorcing. So his father cites irreconcilable differences between the two parents. Well, they told me what marriage was. And they presented for for 18 years a a happy image of a marriage. And now, that's a lie. What what else have they told me is a lie? And so this young man, he goes back and he's, he's a freshman. He's still taking his core curriculum. He has to take a class in world religions and And just a few months earlier, that class in world religions would have been a wonderful way for him to learn about the religions of the world and and perhaps improve his apologetic and learn how to take the gospel to those religions. And now, sitting here wondering if everything his parents had told him was a lie, he discovers the grace and peace of Buddhism. How life is suffering and pain, and one must simply accept and let it wash over you. He's interested. He does, he does a research paper. He starts reading the books of the Dalai Lama. And by the end of the semester, he's going with his girlfriend to the Transcendental Meditation Club on campus. And by the time he gets home for summer break, well, Mom, Dad, I don't, I don't, I'm not really a Christian anymore. I, I, I'm not going to go with you to church on Sunday. And it started where? It started in a moment of personal crisis. It started with a troubled soul. This soul trouble makes us vulnerable. It allows the lies of false gospels to come in and reverse the gospel. That's the other thing that Paul says that they're doing, right? In, in, the, in, the, in what we read, I read that they, he, Paul says that they distort the gospel. Another way to translate that word distort is they're, sort, they're reversing it. They're reversing the gospel. See, that's the insidious thing. It takes elements of truth and reverses them and it flips them upside down to make something that looks like it might be the truth, but is in fact the opposite. There is no lie that is effective as the lie that has the grain of truth in it. There is no lie that is effective as the lie that has the grain of truth in it. The very first lie ever told when the enemy comes to Eve, there's an element of truth. Did God tell you if you eat of any tree, you will surely die? Well, that's not what God said, right? But it begins insert doubt and falsehood. So if we talk about reversing the gospel, what do we mean? Well, when we reverse something, right, we take what's in front and put it in the back and what's in the back and put it in the front. The gospel at its very uttermost basic is this. We are saved by grace alone through the work of Christ. We are saved by grace alone through the work of Christ for good works. False teachers and false gospels often reverse this. We carry out good works so that we may receive grace. Turn it on its head. The elements, all of the elements are there. Grace and good works are just in the wrong order. How do people distort 
the gospel today, you hear it. I, I know you have heard it. I know that you have probably heard it in the last month. Someone passes away. They weren't involved in church. There was no evidence that they were a Christian. And what do we say? Uncle Johnny was such a good man, he's in a better place. And yet there is no evidence, no proof, that Uncle Johnny knew Christ at all. Whatsoever. See, there's this idea, right, that that we merit eternal life by goodness and good works. She was such a good person. Here's, Here's one we hear sometimes. Well, he was a better person than a lot of the Christians I know. One of the ways that this shows up, and I've, I've talked about this before, and it is so prevalent in, in, in our culture and in our churches today, is this false gospel of moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic, that's what moral therapeutic deism is. This is exactly what it teaches. So it's deism, right? There is a God, but God's not personally involved in my life. That's, that's deism. If you've ever studied the 18th century and the Enlightenment, a lot of those guys deists. They, they believed in a God, but God wasn't active. He was, a, he was a clockmaker who put everything in motion and then it just sort of runs on its own. And this, this impersonal God out there, creator, clockmaker, he wants us to be good, moral, so that we can feel good. Therapeutic. Moral, therapeutic, deism. I've, I've heard in churches, I've heard the gospel presented this way. I shudder to think I may have presented the gospel this way on occasion. God wants good things for you. So why don't you turn your life over to Him? Why don't you turn your life over to God so that you can have good things? That's not the gospel. That's works-based righteousness. You know, and then here's the objection, right? The objection to this is always, but so-and-so was such a good person. I'm not saying that non-believers can't be moral. We know God wrote His morality into the very fabric of creation. You can look at creation and see how to live a relatively moral life. I am not saying that non-believers cannot be moral. What I am saying is that morality does not get you into heaven. We don't need morality. We need righteousness. And there is no one in history who has been perfectly righteous except Jesus. And so if we need perfect righteousness, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to take on our sin, but we also need Him to gift us His righteousness. Because we can never, ever, ever be good enough. And I know it's very popular right now, you know, to... You know, you, oh, you're good enough. You're, you're perfect just the way you are. And I understand where that comes from. And let me tell you, as a father of a six-month-old, it is really hard for me not to look at him and say, oh, you are perfect just the way you are. 
But we do damage. We do damage when we keep telling people that they can be good enough. Works-based system is hopeless. And it drives hopelessness. Because when we tell people you can be good enough when they aren't good enough and none of them ever will be, and deep down inside we all know that, it leads to two things. It can either lead to this ability, this desire to just white-knuckle it and make our lives and the lives of the people around us miserable because we're just going to force it to happen. Or, and here's the other thing, and this is what I'm seeing more and more and more among people my age and younger, this is anecdotal, we resign ourselves to living a life of sin so we just dive headfirst into it. I, I'm never going to be good enough. You tell me I can be good enough? I know I can't be good enough. I know I can't follow all the rules, so why follow any of them? Brothers and sisters, the goal of the Christian life is not to be good. The goal of the Christian life is not to be moral. Let me offer, the goal of the Christian life is not even to enter into heaven. The goal of the Christian life is union with God through Christ. If someone were to come up to me today and to say, you do know that union with God through Christ won't give you eternal life. I would still want union with God through Christ. Because that's what I was made for. That's what you were made for. Now, the benefit, the, the joy, the, here's a Gulf Coast expression for you, lanyap, the little bit extra, is that union with God in Christ means we get to spend eternity with Him. But that's not the goal. I'm not a fire insurance salesman. My goal is to preach the Gospel and stir up a desire in you for a life of union with God through Christ. So how do we do this? How do we avoid falling into false Gospels? First, Paul tells us right here, we've got to hold on, we've got to tenaciously hold on to the true Gospel. He tells us, right, if, if we, that includes him, if we or even an angel were to come back and give you another gospel, reject it. We've got to cling tightly to the truth. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, cling tightly with both your hands, and when they fail, catch on with your teeth, and if they gave way, hang on with your eyelashes. Second, we must let Scripture be our final authority in matters of faith. We've got to let Scripture be our final authority in matters of faith. There is nothing else that we have that approaches the revelation of God to man as the Word of God. It is the infallible, inerrant expression of His Word to us. Tradition, reason, and experience can all help us understand Scripture, but Scripture alone is our final guide. Our Baptist faith and message says this, says it this way, Scripture is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions are to be tried. 
So we've got to tenaciously hold on to the true gospel. We've got to, we've got to let Scripture be our final authority. And third, we have to heed biblical warnings. We don't really like being warned about things, especially when, they keep us, when they're warning us about doing things that we really want to do. We come up with all sorts of excuses to ignore them. You know, warnings can make us feel like we're being talked talk down to. And then our pride steps in and says, wait, well, I know what's best and true and right, and that is the lie of the garden. That's the root of all sin. This thought that we and not God should be and can be the arbiter of truth and right and wrong. And here's the things. Warnings save lives, don't they? No one ever looks at a child who is running out into the middle of traffic and says, well, I don't want to be rude and ruin their day by telling them to get out of the road. You tell them to get out of the road. And sometimes, if you can, you snatch them. Don't you? We need to be willing to offer these biblical warnings ourselves. This is what Paul's doing, right? He's, he's offering a warning to the Galatians. Now, it's important here. Offering warnings is not our individual responsibility. Nobody, literally, nobody has died and made you Barney Fife. Your job is not to go around saying, well, I got to nip it in the bud. We got to nip it. Andy? Nobody has died and made you Barney Fife. Thank goodness, because I prefer to having more than one bullet at a time. No, it's not our individual responsibility, but it is the responsibility of the church. It is the responsibility of the church to call people to biblical faithfulness and to offer biblical warnings. I'd say this, if I would say that if we aren't offering warnings, and, and I mean clear warnings based on a clear reading of Scripture, not our own personal feeling. If we're not offering clear warnings, then we're not being loving. No one says to a parent or a, or a neighbor or a friend who is just fussed at a child for running out into traffic, you aren't being loving, offering them a warning. Sin can flatten you just as soon as a car. We end with verse 10, Paul saying, I don't want to be a people pleaser. I'm not here. Am I trying to persuade people or God? Am I striving to please people? If I was trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, we, we do that, right? We want to please people. And so we say, well, I can't offer a warning I can't call people to, to faithfulness. I, I can't call people to the truth because won't that turn people away? Let's, let's, let's just love them all into the kingdom. We have to ask ourselves the same question that Paul's asking in verse 10. Is this a popularity contest or are we to, seeking to serve God? Because often, and even most of the time, those two things are in opposition to each other. Now, I'm not saying be rude. I'm not saying be ugly. I'm not saying be up in somebody's face. I'm not saying walk up to somebody that you don't know that's doing something that you don't like and tell them to get better. What I'm telling you is in the context of personal relationships, in the context of the church and the congregation, we need 
to be willing to call people to biblical faithfulness. On Wednesday night, we're studying the book of Revelation. This past week, we did a marathon session through the seven letters. And here's the thing in those seven letters. One of the things that we learn in those seven letters is Christ says, I can take away your lampstand. I can take away your light. I can take away your presence. And he offers two reasons, two main reasons for doing that. The first is false teachers. Of those seven churches, two of them are plagued by false teachers. But the strongest words that Jesus has are for those who have lost to the spark. They've forgotten the gospel and they're spiritually dead, lukewarm. Jesus says that they're wretched and pitiable. And so our question needs to be this. Our question needs to be this. Are we living in such a way that our lampstand will be lit? Are we living in such a way, not that we're trying to win a popularity contest, but that we're calling people to biblical faithfulness? Because God will not bless a church or a congregation or a person that is not seeking spiritual help and total and complete devotion to him and his glory. Paul says that he is amazed that they have fallen for this other gospel. What I would offer is it's a whole lot easier to fall for false gospels than Paul thinks it is. And so we need to be faithful and sure and ever vigilant, holding on to the real gospel, to the true gospel, which is this, that Jesus Christ came from heaven as the perfect son of the perfect God to live a perfect life and die a perfect death on a wretched cross. In his death, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And in the resurrection, as he, after he was dead and buried and rose again from the dead in the resurrection, gave us his righteousness so that we can be united with God in grace. And after that, have the freedom to pursue God's design for us. His perfect plan for his people. And if I ever preach a gospel other than that, may a curse be on my head. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, we give you thanks this morning for all that you have done for us. I give you thanks for your gospel. I give you thanks for your mercy. God, may we be a people who hold on tightly to the true gospel and be a people who love one another and support each other enough to help one another hold on to it. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 330.